Good evening again and welcome to our gospel meeting. We're grateful for your presence. We're thankful for the host of visitors that we have been blessed with throughout the week. And we want to encourage those who are visiting to please come back. We would invite you back tomorrow night and then again on Sunday morning for Bible study at 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. We have been very blessed to have the Memphis School of Preaching students with us this week. They have been literally pounding the pavement every day, and they have had the opportunity to speak to hundreds of individuals in this community, and there have been Bible correspondence courses that have been set up, as well as personal Bible studies. Individuals have expressed an interest in studying one-on-one the Bible, and so for that, we are extremely grateful. We do appreciate Brother Baxter leading our singing tonight. I remember many years ago, Tom Holland making the statement that good singing will ultimately lead to good preaching, and bad singing can kill even good preaching. Well, we've been blessed to have good singing all week, and we've had good preaching. Brother Mosier asked me just a moment ago, or he made the statement to me, it must be hard coming up with something to say four days in a row about him. I said, listen, not... Not a problem. I've, I've, all I've done is simply read what he has written. And so, it's not been a problem. But uh, we are extremely grateful to have Brother Mosher with us. Many of you, uh, no doubt, like me, have appreciated the lessons that we have heard. And I do appreciate him and his wife, Dorothy, their fervency for the kingdom the great love that they have for the Lord and their desire to preach and teach to those who are lost and dying in this world. And they have made a difference, not just in this community, but in the lives of many, many people. And I am convinced that there will be people in heaven because of their efforts. And so for that, we are extremely grateful. We do appreciate his willingness to be here tonight to speak on the home. And so at this time, I will now turn our service over to Brother Keith Mosher. In the last census, it, it came to light that there are more people living together now without benefit of a legal marriage than are married. 51% of the people living together in this country are not married. We also know that 27% of our children are being ra reared by one parent. Divorce of all new couples is at the 50% rate. Teenagers, and I want you to keep this one in mind, divorce at the rate of 89%. The home in this country has fallen completely apart. And whether we realize it or not, it is the home that is the backbone of our community, our nation, and the world. If we don't have good homes, we can't have a good nation. I've often wondered if this generation were faced with what Joe's generation was faced in World War II, if they could even win the battle. We have so many today who do not understand that there is an objective truth about the home. In fact, I don't believe they even give it a second thought. A couple came in my office one day and told me, we're going to try being married. Would you marry us? I said, no, sir. We're not going to try that. We're going to work at it. Let's go to Matthew, the 19th chapter, and listen to the Lord tonight 
as he instructs some people who came to him and said, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Matthew 19.3. Those Pharisees were echoing a school headed by a rabbi named Helal. Rabbi Helal taught that you could put away your wife for any reason, and he took that from Deuteronomy 24, which states if there be found any uncleanness in her, he could put her away. Jesus will teach us quite clearly that the uncleanness is fornication and only fornication. But it is the case that that's what caused this question. Now I want you to hear his answer. Look what he says. Have you not read how important that is? If folks would read this scripture, they'd know how to have a home that God loves. Here's the manual. He tells us exactly how to do it. Have you not read? Look over at Matthew 22 for a moment. This time it's the Sadducees. I hope you know the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The others didn't, so they were sad, you see. These are the left-wingers who came out of European dispersion. They are the priests of the day. These are the ones at a really high level, they thought, ecclesiastically. Pharisees, on other terms, were people who had been in Babylonian captivity and came back and set themselves apart. That's what Pharisee means, to protect the word of God. But on this occasion, mentioned here in Matthew 22, the Sadducees come to him. Verse 23. On that day there came to him Sadducees, they that say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master... Moses said, if a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife. This is the lever at law. And raise up seed unto his brother. Now they were with us. And the first married and died, having no seed, left his wife unto his brother. In like manner, the second, the third, and the seventh. You know, had I been the fifth or sixth husband in that line, I would have started checking the cereal. Must have been ground glass in it. This woman killed off seven husbands. They really think they have an argument. That's why I'm mocking it. They don't have an argument. It reminds me of the stories that people tell me. The first man said, the second man said, the third man said. And I could have gotten the same joke out of the first man, but we've got to spread out the joke. The Sadducees think by, by piling up all this information, they have an argument. They don't. I want you to hear what Jesus said to them. In, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife shall she be of the seventh? See, they don't believe in the resurrection. So they think they have an argument that there is no resurrection. Otherwise, this guy's going to have seven, this woman's going to have seven husbands over there. Jesus said, you made two mistakes. You do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Keep that in mind now. There's going to be come a time in my existence, and yours too, when I cease to be a male. Sister, there's going to come a time in your existence when you cease to be a female. There's no gender over there. We'll know each other, but it's genderless. There's no need to marry and have children in heaven. Nobody dies there. And so we are like the angels of God in heaven. We are genderless when it comes to sex. All right, keep that in mind. He says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, watch him now, 
have ye not read? That's what he said to the Pharisees about marriage. Haven't you read? Well, it's right there in front of you. Just read it. Now watch what he says. Have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Did you get resurrection out of that? You would if you knew when that was written. That statement, I am Abraham's God and Isaac's God and Jacob's God, was written a thousand years after their bodies were dead. And so it is the case that he's saying to them, when God said, I am their God, that means they're still living somewhere. And if they're still living somewhere, it's no problem for God to bring them back in the resurrection. You made two mistakes, Sadducees. You forgot to read, and you forgot God's power. It is so important. I'm just emphasizing, have you not read? So many couples we've talked to over the years have no idea what would make them happy in their marriages, and it's right in the book. It's right in the book. If you ask Dorothy how many wonderful years we've been married, she'd say 37. But we've been married 47. But they weren't wonderful, the other 10. I'm doing better. I read the book. That's the key. You want to have a happy home, the one that God loves? You have to read the book. Let's go back to these Pharisees now. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? For every cause. Have you not read? Watch him answer the question. That he which made them at the beginning made them five males and six females. He made one male and one female, and that's the answer to his question. The question posed to him is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? No, God hates divorce. He hates it. He said so. Malachi 3. And that one man and one woman is the key. And when we get married, we are for life married. That's our goal. That's our commitment. Nothing else matters. And so it is the case that it isn't lawful for a man to put away his wife with every cause. And what did he make them at the beginning? He made a male and a female. He made an Eve for Adam. He did not make a Steve for Adam. He made a male and a female. And that is exactly how God wants it. You know, some folks argue, well, that's the way I'm born. Well, if you're born that way, you're still not allowed to be in that activity. I was born with the possibility of having 700 wives and 300 concubines. Solomon did, but God won't allow that. Could I argue with him? Well, I was born that way. We do not buy that argument biblically. If you have that kind of frustrated desire, you're going to have to fight it if you want to go to heaven. He made a male and a female. Now watch what he says. Because I made a male and a female, here are the three things that will make you have a home that God loves. Watch what he says. First thing out of the blocks here. He says... For this cause, what cause? Because I made a male and a female. For this cause, here's the first rule, shall a man leave father and mother. I said earlier that 89% of teenage marriages in this country are ending in divorce. There's a reason for it. 
In our society today, adolescence does not stop in the teen years. Our children, generally speaking, are not fully mature until they're about 25 or 26 years old in terms of adolescence. In other words, what's happening is we have babies getting married who do not know how to take the responsibility for a brand new home. Did you notice he said, leave father and mother? That means that the man in that marriage and the woman in that marriage become a new home. They have new responsibility. He is to protect and provide for her. And she's not to run home to mama every time they have an argument. You're making a new home. When my oldest son got married, his wife-to-be was called by her father, and he said to her as he held a dinner plate in front of her and snapped it in two, he wanted her to keep half the dinner plate. He said, you're always welcome here, but you're starting a new home, and let this be the symbol of it. She has that hanging on the wall in her house right now. This is a new home. We have to leave father and mother. But what does it mean to leave my father and mother? Look over at Mark 7 with me for a moment. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Leave my father and mother. Incidentally, I might add, it's not a good reason to get married to get away from your father and mother either. In verse uh, 7 of this text in Mark, he talks about these people whose heart is far from him, but his lips, but their lips honor him. He says, here's what they do. In vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines of men. You, hold, you leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of God. Well, give us an example of what you're talking about, Jesus. Well, drop down there to verse 10. For Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. Now, I suppose somebody would think that's a contradiction between leave father and mother, honor father and mother, so we've got a contradiction in the Bible. No, we do not. In order to establish a new home, got to be an adult, grown up, leave father and mother, but I can still honor them. Here's how you do it. Watch this. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that speaketh the evil of father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, if a, if a man shall say to his father's mother, that wherewith thou mightest have been profited by me is Corban. What a practice that was. Mom and dad are old now. They need help. They need to be taken care of. This couple would go to the priest and say, Hold our money. You take, your, you take this Corban, and when mom and dad are no longer on the scene, you take your cut and we'll get our money back. So that we can tell mom and dad we don't have the money to take care of you. What a terrible thing. But I also learned from that terrible practice what honoring my father and mother means. That means when they need my help, I'm there to help them. When they get to that age when they can no longer fend for themselves, my obligation is to take care of them. Why? Because I started a new home. I'm the provider in that home. She's my helper, suitable. And we are adults doing adult things, not children throwing tantrums every time they don't get their way. Look back at Matthew 19 now. He said, leave father and mother. That means you leave them physically. You start a new place to live. You leave them emotionally, husband the number one person in your life next to God is your mate. Wife, the number one person in your life next to God is your mate. And mom's not the children either. 
Not the children. He is. And how many times I've counseled couples where she was putting the children ahead of him, and guess what happened when the children left the house? They had nothing in common. They have what they call the empty nest syndrome, and they get all upset with each other. We started a love life and Christian marriage class at South Haven years ago, and I thought, Michael, we would have the young couples, 25 or so. The people who wanted to come to that class were in their 60s and 70s. They had forgotten how to be what God wanted them to be. Their lives were like this, not like this. They had not paid attention to one another throughout the years, and the empty nest syndrome had set in. He said, leave, father and mother. My friend Ron Brotherton down in California says, when you get married, you put two bridges between, three bridges between you and your in-laws, and you burn down two of them. There's a boy living right over here in South Haven. I hope he's not here tonight. But I know that every Thanksgiving he eats five Thanksgiving dinners because his family says, you've got to come to my house. And the man's not the man enough to say, no, we're only going to one. I protect my house from my own in-laws. You do the same thing. This is your home now. And you need to be leaving Father and mother. Hmm. When I was at South Haven, they came into my office. They were so madly in lust. You have to be married a long time to learn what agape love is. You, you, you just were attracted to him or her. It's all right. It's the way it starts. But they were madly. And I said to him, how old are you? He said, 16. How old are you? She said, 19. But we want you to do our wedding, Brother Mosier. Well, there's a privilege. You know, there are three people who should never show up at a wedding rehearsal. That's the two mothers-in-law and the bride. We'd get done in five minutes. I've always known where I was supposed to stand, and yet I have to stay around there for three hours learning that over and over again. No, I don't mind doing weddings, but not this one. So I looked at him a minute, leave father and mother. I said, where are you going to live? He said, well, with mommy. I said, where do you work? He said, I don't work, I'm in high school. Somebody's got to support that family. So I looked at her and I said, where do you work? She got insulted. His mother's going to take care of us. I had them read this passage and told them I would not do the wedding. That's my privilege as a gospel preacher to say no when I know trouble's coming. Did you know that when you mess around with the mama bear, I mean with the cubs, the mama bear gets upset? Well, they went home and told her what I said evidently, and she called me. Why won't you do the wedding? I said, if those two go through with this, they'll be divorced within the year. I should apologize to her. It was three months later. You have to be able to leave father and mother. That means, young man, that you need to be financially ready to start a new home. Young lady, that means that you need to be able to go wherever he has to go to make that living. Whether he goes, you go. What would you say is the number one reason more men don't come to the Memphis School of Preaching? Their wives won't leave mama at home. They want to stay there where they grew up. I understand the nest builder syndrome. 
But when you marry that man, sister, you're to be at his side. You're to be at his side. We need to be ready to leave father and mother. Did you notice the next thing in line? Now, here's his second rule. He says, cleave to his wife. Let's run over to Ephesians 5 a minute. Mike, are you in a reading mood tonight? You want to get the mic? Do you need the mic? Start there in verse 21 and just read down through there a while. I'll stop you as you're reading. Is that still in the Bible? It says, wives, be in subjection to your own husband. Now notice what that said. In subjection to your own husbands. Only one woman in this audience is in subjection to me in the way Paul means it here. And that's Dorothy. This is not about woman's role in the church. This is about woman's role at home. And she is to be in subjection to him sexually and he to her, 1 Corinthians 7. And if he makes a decision and it's a good decision, she should go with him. That's her role. That's the one God gave her. Do you know how much, unha how much unhappiness occurs when she is angry about that role and won't fulfill it? Or he doesn't take the lead he's supposed to lead, uh, take? Let's keep reading. In what? In what? In everything. Did you hear that, Dorothy? Let's go. I don't know why you sisters get so upset about this idea of being in subjection. You know what it means in the original language? It means second in command. That's exactly what it means. Second in command. But if I want to go to Kmart and she wants to go to Walmart, I make the decision, we're going to Kmart. And that's all you've got to do, sister, is go to Kmart. Is that a big deal? That really bothers you somehow that I made this decision? Read verse 25 again. You think you've got it hard. Listen to what he says to us husbands. As Sister, all you've got to do to go is to go to Kmart. I've got to die for her. I'm being taught here I'm her protector. Well, I figured out I'm supposed to love my wife. So being a macho American male, I went to work every day. Support my wife. Sure, I love her. I'd come home and I'd get on the lawnmower and ride around and make the place look really great. It's for my wife. Show her I love her. Hmm. She's sitting in the house. He doesn't pay any attention to me. It took me a while to realize that I cannot communicate love to her except in one way. Would each husband in this room tonight look at his wife's head for a moment, please? Come on, Casey. I know you've went through this before, but do it again. On your wife's head are two appendages called ears. Every woman I've ever met has these. 
And it is my responsibility as the husband to tell her so and mean it and get it across to her these three words. It's my lifelong effort as a husband. She needs to know that I need her. And I've got to say that audibly. That's where she operates, men, right there. You could give her 16 Cadillacs, mow the grass all the time, go to work 18 hours a day. She still needs personal attention. When was the last time you called your wife for a date? She said, I'm married. Yeah, I don't know. How did you win her? How do you keep the romance going? You date her just as when you were out there in the world somewhere. When was the last time, brother? Husbands, love your wives. Thank God for the precious gift of a wife. While we're there, brother Mike, find the verse that says, Wives, love your husbands. No, in this passage. Going to run over to Titus 2 on me. Find the verse in this passage that says, Husbands, or wives, love your husbands. It's not here, folks. And there's a reason. Read the last verse in the text there, Mark. The last verse of the chapter 5. Please. I came out from preaching one Sunday morning and got in the car. And Dorothy said, where in the world did you get that sermon? I cried all the way home. Because she did the very thing that this verse says not to do. Would each wife here tonight look at her husband for a moment? See if he's got shoulder blades. Does he? Because it's your job, sister, to make him feel that he's the best at whatever he does. That's how men operate. They think of themselves in terms of their work. And when I step on that or, or denigrate it in any way or talk about it in a bad way, I'm stepping on his manhood. So reach your hand over there and pat him on the shoulders. Go ahead. It won't hurt. Come on, get between the shoulder blades. You're clear over here on the right shoulder. I had a meeting on one occasion. was invited to this preacher's house for dinner. And I got there earlier than he did. And the children were talking to me, and they were talking about their father. And the more I listened, I thought, this guy's a superman. I mean, they just talked in such fine ways about their, the father. Well, at the dinner table, she was there and the children. I began to listen some more, and I figured out what it was. That's the tone she said in that home. Daddy was the king of his castle. And she let the children know that. And that's the way she treated him. He was one of the happiest men I've ever been around. Because she knew to reverence him. And he, in turn, loved her. We have to leave father and mother and cleave unto our wives. You know how different we are. We're so different. How many of you men have ever been behind a woman at a stop sign and there's a car coming in the next county and she waits on it? Did you beep your horn? won't do any good. What we don't understand about these wonderful creatures that God created is their depth perception is different from ours. 
That car looks closer to her than it does to us. We think we could have pulled out there eight times. Not her eyesight. It won't give her that. Any of you folks argue over the thermostat? I don't know why. You started out eight degrees physiologically different. Because God made me a man. He made my wife a woman. Before I was born as a male, a wash of testosterone came down over my brain, which makes me a male. doesn't happen to you girls. And from that moment on, the side of my brain that I use the most to receive information is the right side. It's the logical side. And all the information comes to me over here. When a, sister, a woman receives information, same information, it flows both ways. And the emotional side leads the logical side. And every argument I've tried to settle between a husband and wife has to do with he didn't hear what she was really saying and she had no idea what he was doing. Dorothy walked in the house one day and she said, I wrecked the car. Watch my logical brain, Joe. Goes right into activity. One, two, three, four, five. I'm a male. Information came. I've got it. And so I said, did you total the car? No. Have we got insurance? Yes. Was the other person hurt? No. Can we get the car fixed? Yes. I'm settled. I go back and sit down in the chair. She goes to get a frying pan to kill me. <laughs> because she did not say to me, I wrecked the car. Those were the words. But I have learned wife code. That's wife code for, Keith, aren't you glad I'm still alive? Come and give me a hug. That's what she said. Because I have to remember, she operates emotionally. I heard about a young lady who prayed to God for her knight in shining armor. She thought she met him. And they got married and they went off on this wonderful honeymoon and about two weeks later they came back and everything was fine for a while until she noticed that when he ate, he made some awfully funny noises. And then when he slept, he made funnier noises. And here were his dirty clothes on the floor. You know, most men don't know the difference between a clothes hammer and the clothes hamper and the floor. And I know some of our students don't know the difference between a closet and the floor either. I'll see in their apartment. And she's thinking, he's so sloppy. She gets down on her knees and says, Lord, I think you gave me the wrong one. <laughs> no. Because when I leave my father and mother and learn to cleave unto my wife, learn to cleave, it takes a long time. To learn to love, are you listening? To learn to love the unlovable. That's agape love. That's God. That's the goal of every marriage. Is to learn to love the unlovable. That's why he put us in a church. It breaks my heart when I hear brethren bickering with one another. That ought not to be. But it also breaks my heart when I hear a husband and wife doing that. They need to learn to cleave to one another. Did you notice the third thing in that sentence? They too shall be one flesh. They too shall be one 
when Cled Wallace married his brother Foy, he said at the end of the sermon, or the wedding ceremony, I now pronounce you one. When I was a little boy, a long time before dirt was invented, we had a cellar. Now, I don't know if you know what a cellar is, but there is there are no uh, floors in these things, just dirt down there. But in those days, Mother did a lot of canning. You remember canning. And she had shelves down there, and she kept the cans on the shelf. Whenever she wanted something, it was my job to go down there and get it for her off the shelf. The problem was I hated that job. It was dark down there. There were cobwebs. One day she said, go get me a jar of preserves. Hmm. So I came running back upstairs with them, and the jar lid was rusted shut. And she worked that thing off of there somehow. But the preserves in it had been on the shelf so long that they had completely turned to sugar. When a man, Christian, and a woman, Christian, commit in God's way to each other, commit in God's way to each other, when they do that, when they are adults starting a new home, doing it right, not depending on other folks, committed to each other, learning how to treat one another and love one another and communicate with one another, when they cleave to one another, listen to what Jesus said. He said, the longer they stay together, the sweeter it gets. The sweeter it turns to sugar. And you can't beat that. God loves a home like that. But sadly, homes like that are disappearing from the face of the earth. Do you remember coming home and mom was there with the milk and cookies? We don't even have that today. We've made a terrible sacrifice of our children in this country. If you're not a Christian tonight, husband, I know your wife wants you to be. The Lord wants you to be. I want you to be. Maybe there's a, sister, a woman here tonight who's not a Christian yet. The greatest thing you can do for your family is to obey the Lord. Do it His way. One male, one female, for life. Somebody asked me the other day, what is a Christian? A Christian is a person who believes that Jesus died, buried, and, was ro and rose again the third day. Believing that, he has repented. That is, he made a decision to obey the Christ. The first command Christ gives you is to confess Him before witnesses. 1 Timothy 6.12. The second command is to allow someone to immerse you in water. When you come up out of that water, you are free from all your past sins. There may be somebody here tonight. Things haven't been going right at home. You need some help. You need some prayer. You need some rethinking. If you have a need, we'd be glad to help you while we stand and while we stand.